Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be doing a director's analysis on one of the most influential filmmakers in history, the master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock. I just I told you we gotta brand keep it quick. I missed the brander. Quick. We can't like have banter. Three hour shows and then go back to trying to banter now. Hey, the three There's hours no is not my fault. The three hours is not my fault. When I was editing the show, I noticed that there was a whole eight minute section of just you talking. What do you mean? What what was I talking about? Well you had was, the whole it was boiling a, rock thing. That was a part you were in, on a tangent. I did. It was a part in Sozin's Comet, and I don't remember what part it was, but it was just eight straight minutes of just <laughs> your dialogue. Oh, it was probably the Azula thing. I don't think it was. It was something else. Because Azula was like six minutes. It was, I swear, I think it might have been the past avatars. And like building up to the past avatars, talking about what they each talk about, and then going past the past avatars. That could not have been eight minutes. It was close to, go watch the recording. It's uploaded now. Okay, well, I listened to the first one. And then listened to some of the second one. Did you see that I put... Uh, I, I uploaded them one day after the other. I did. Well, I was hoping you were going to do that. <laughs> it was it was very close. I got it in the last four minutes of yesterday. Nice. So it, it, the the date will be correct. It was very Beautiful. close. Yeah, I um the Azula one I know for sure because you tried to you were like yo pick up the pace when I was talking about that one. Yeah. I did not think the other one I talked for eight minutes straight. It was long. It was intense. All in one recording. Yep. Craziness. We will try to avoid doing three-hour things like that, which is why we will go straight into the news. And by news, I mean the Emmys from the previous night, at least for us. It'll be the past weekend for y'all listening. But the Emmys 2021, primetime Emmys, they happened. Dylan, what are your thoughts? Any surprises, any highlights, any things you were shocked or angry about? Well, for one thing, I forgot that they were even happening this weekend. I like. I woke up this morning and saw the news, and then just looked at all the winners. Um, big congrats to the Ted Lasso team. They had a couple of really good wins: Jason Sudeikis, uh, Outstanding Comedy, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. That's all wonderful and fantastic. That makes me really happy. Um, overall, you know, pretty pretty cut and dry on the board. Not not anything super crazy. All of the acting winners were white. Is one thing I read. So that's interesting. I saw that. Also, I, okay, there were it's a not the bunch of diverse thing, nominees. This is so true. I don't know why that was like they harped on that fact. Like it, it wasn't. True. I mean, there was significant representation. Also, RuPaul won for the eleventh time or something like that. Yeah. And Michaela Cole, who was snubbed at the Golden Globes, she won writing for limited series for I May Destroy You. Which so, I mean, there were wins. Yeah, of course. Um, so, I don't know. I thought that was a moot point that some trades brought up. Um, the Queen's Gambit didn't win as much as I thought it would. Like, I was surprised that Anya Taylor-Joy didn't win. 
I know because it's been so long since that came out. I guess this the, is true. The hype just died down for it, and Mayor Town was much more recent. So Kate Winslet with that Emmy, good for her. Yeah, good for uh, Evan Peters for the same show. He he beat out three actors from Hamilton to get that. <laughs> he was able to do it. He pulled yeah. through. Which, by the way, speaking of Hamilton, I still think it's ridiculous that it. It shouldn't I, be. It feels like it's been getting nominated for at least a year and a half straight now. And the fact that it won the pre-recorded special, coming up against Inside, Dave Chappelle, there was the Friends and West Wing reunions, so I was slighted by both of them. Inside should have won. Inside should have won. Inside should have won, especially since the recording for Hamilton, they recorded that, what, five years ago? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, come on. In the production value of it, the only TV aspect they did was the editing. They put a camera on it. And, yeah, doing some of the... Like choices were, oh, we're gonna do a close up here, do a wider shot here. Like it's a great play, but it's not like they did anything special. It's not for television. The fact that it was translated to television. It was just recording a play. Like the only reason it was because there was editing between camera angles. And honestly, I would have preferred just a straight shot of the play as opposed to editing back and forth. But I mean, I guess Hamilton always wins is what we've learned. Hamilton always wins. This is going to be the one award that. Lin-Manuel Miranda wins this season, this award season, and it's going to be for Hamilton. The That's hilarious. Done five years ago. He has a lot coming out this year. I know. And he's going to whiff on all of them. Yeah, it's, it sucks. Maybe not Tick Tick, but he might get nominations. Maybe, but I don't think he's going to win. He's really going for that Oscar. He wants to get that he got. He really does. Isn't that the last thing he needs? Yes. So that's why he has four films coming out this year. So we'll see if it works in his favor. Speaking of Netflix, they had The Crown win drama series, which is the first time it won. But it feels like The Crown's been dominating lately. Golden Globes, it was cleaning up. And then the past oh, yeah. few years, it's always been winning the acting stuff. Um, but this is the first time that Netflix did actually win for the primetime outstanding drama series. So good for them. And of course, they also won limited anthology series for The Queen's Gambit, which was interesting that that was the last award they gave. Yeah, which is maybe a clue about the future of television, how it may lean towards those limited series where you get those stories that unfold across six, mm-hmm. eight, ten episodes. They're contained, um, but they're able to go deeper into the characters and the themes than you would if it was a movie. Yeah. So fascinating Netflix, that they did that. Yeah, Netflix might be crawling for that award again next year with the scenes from Marriage. That's Netflix, right? That's HBO. Is it really? Yes. It's HBO's putting up a fight. HBO Max specifically, which they won. Oh, it's definitely HBO Max. Like, it's definitely a streaming service. I know that for sure. Gotcha. Well, but I'm saying, because there's still, they want to have a distinction between HBO proper and HBO Max. Yeah, of course. And HBO Max got its first win with Gene Smart for a lead comedy actress for Hacks. Um, so mm-hmm. good for her and for HBO Max, able to do that. I haven't watched the show, but it's supposed to be very good. Mary yeah, I've been meaning to watch it. it. I like so. Jean Smart, so I've been meaning to watch. She was in Mary Vistow. Oh, well, there you go. Did you watch that show? I did not. Should I? Because I we talked about it on the show. I think where you yeah, said you yeah. watched it. We did that for a grab bag review. I think you should watch it. I think it is entertaining enough. the The end kind of flubs for me, but it's still good. I, I just love their accents. <laughs> the very specific Pennsylvania backwoods accent 
is See? very distinct and fun to listen to. But honestly, Evan Peters is fantastic, and I'm so glad he won an Emmy. It's his first nomination and his first win, so good for him. He won. Kate Winslet won. They did a, a great job, so congratulations to them. And Ewan McGregor won for My Halston, boy. a show that, that nobody Never watched. heard of it. Nobody watched. <laughs> Don't know what was, that is, but I'm glad he won. It was about a fashion designer, and Ewan McGregor played the fashion designer, and I guess it, he was good in it. He looked good in the trailer that I saw, but I did not watch the show. I don't know anyone that did, but congratulations to him. His first Emmy, and hopefully we'll see him again with the Kenobi show. Hopefully it's hopefully, high quality. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of that, I mean, we saw these bigger, more like mainstream things, WandaVision and Mandalorian get nominated. They did not no wins, bro. any major wins, but Good. they they were in the running. So at least they made it. Uh, another thing that was interesting, Conan, he won no Emmys, but he won our hearts. Did you see the antics Conan was up to? No. He didn't? Oh, you need to go back and watch it. There, well, Stephen Colbert won for live uh, variety special, which yeah. Conan was not nominated for, but Conan just runs up with him and his team. And just starts cheering, like going wild over it. And Stephen Colbert's up there and he's like giving his thanks. And he goes, this really isn't just me. It's all the people that I've worked with, all the people behind me, most of the people behind me. Um, so, yeah, that was great. And then earlier on in the show, Conan also was cheering wildly, like did a standing ovation for the president of the Emmy Academy. Um to the point where he did it so long that everyone else joined in standing up with him and doing the ovation. <laughs> and then he starts saluting the president of the Emmy Academy. It's just, like, just having a good time. Just for a whole minute, just wasted everyone's time and made everyone, because they're all just sitting down clapping as they normally do because he's going so wild and screaming and standing. Everyone else had to do the standing ovation. That's just hilarious to me. I did hear that the show itself was lackluster. Like, it was Cedric the Entertainer was the host, and I hear that like the sketches they did were just awkward and unfunny and just weird and just didn't land, mm -hmm. which kind of sucks. I mean, yeah. I haven't seen a good show, like a good entertaining award show since uh, Ricky Gervais did the Golden Globes, <laughs> which is always the most fun. Yes, but for sure. Everything since then has just been offbeat, unfunny, not good, didn't laugh. Uh, yeah, I can't comment on the Cedric the Entertainer stuff because I didn't watch too much of that. Yeah. I just listened in for the awards stuff. Um, but, I mean, it seemed okay. It didn't seem like a terrible train wreck. I mean, yeah, it seems status quo, which is not saying much lately for the award show. I didn't see any talk about the ratings, like how many people tuned in for it. No, I didn't see that. But either. if you, a film lover and person who has a podcast didn't even know that it was happening. I can't imagine much of the general populace was aware of what was going on. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, I've had very little care for the Emmys my entire life. Like, I enjoy watching the Golden Globes because it's like a laid back version of the Oscars. And I like watching the Oscars because I'm big in the movies. But when it comes to TV shows, I'm not big into like award stuff or anything. I just watch TV that I like. I'm not big into like, predicting who's going to win TV. There's just so many. There's there's 16, isn't there 16 acting categories? It's a lot. It's ridiculous. But I mean, hey, 
to somebody likes the Emmys. I'm sure. I mean, I would love to win an Emmy one day, maybe. <laughs> After uh, all that smack talk, you just gave the Emmys. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not gonna. I wouldn't complain or anything. I'm not gonna say no. I don't like the Emmys. I like award shows in general. Yeah, of course. Um, but so yeah, I always enjoy tuning in and seeing it. But yeah, we will see if it was a rock bottom year for the Emmys. Hopefully not. But I don't know. That's the way the trend is going. Yeah, seems like it. Now we're going to move into the box office breakdown for the weekend of September 17th to the 19th. And of course, at the very top of the charts is my boy, Shang-Chi, with 21 million domestically. In its third weekend, that is a 37% drop. It now has 176 million domestic and 320 million worldwide. And it now, of course, has more than F9, which is another one of my babies. Domestically, that is, and it is about to surpass Black Widow. Thank God. Yeah, so Shang-Chi doing well, Holding given the well. fact that it has no competition in September. I don't know why. We just gave a layup to them, but Woo. it happened. So Shang-Chi is able to clean up. May do a fourth weekend as well. We will get to that. But in second place, in its sixth weekend, Free Guy with $5 million, it only had a 7% drop, so they're doing extremely well. Here's just how well they're doing. Uh, worldwide, it has more than Jungle Cruise and Suicide Squad. Had either of us picked Free Guy, <laughs> instead of those films, we'd be doing better yeah. in our draft. That's, That's what crazy. I'm saying. What a mistake. I should have bet on Ryan Reynolds. I feel like a fool. Who could have predicted that, though? That's just insane. That is doing Ryan Reynolds well. is, a, is a powerhouse of advertisement, dude. Like He, he knows is. how to sell a movie. He's very good. Got it to the tune of three hundred million worldwide. Insane. Yeah. In third place is Clint Eastwood's last cling to relevance, Cry Macho. It only made four and a half million, so it bombed. It's his first weekend, and it bombed. It is, of course, on HBO Max as well. But we've seen films that were also on HBO Max do very well commercially, like F Nine, and so Clint Eastwood has fallen out of good graces. I hear it's very bad too. Okay, F9 was not on HBO Max. And also, it wasn't? F9? Are really? you okay? F9. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Godzilla. Yes. <laughs> I was like, my guy, what are you talking about? Um, right. Yeah, but also, I mean, it's not a big blockbuster. So, I mean, that's forgivable that it didn't open 30 million. But yeah, definitely a disappointing opening for Clint Eastwood. Hopefully, the man will just let it rest. Stop. Stop making more films. Just chill. He did enough. He did enough. Candyman with 3.5 million comes in fourth in its fourth weekend. It has just passed 50 million domestically. After Candyman is Malignant, the James Wan horror film, it has made 2.6 million, which is a 50% drop from its first weekend, which was last weekend, which is disastrous. Yeah, not doing well. Again, also on HBO Max, so... They have that excuse, but it didn't seem that the audience not good enough enjoyed it. Uh, Cop Shop with 2.3 million. I don't really know nothing about that film. Strahd Butler doing something. Well, not enough, people, not enough people were interested, so not a lot of people went to see it. Nope. After Cop Shop was Jungle Cruise with 2 million in its eighth weekend, it now has 112 million domestic and 204 million worldwide. How do you feel about that, Ryan? Having that be one of your movies? You know... Kind of tragic. It's upsetting that it went to the Disney Premier Access. This was something that came after our draft, so it was completely unforeseen. Could not have been predicted. 
Uh, I mean, it made two hundred four million with that, you know, that curveball. So I'm I'm glad about that. But it could have made three hundred mil. Could have made four hundred mil because we know that it did successfully enough to get a sequel. So I, it's very frustrating that it was sacrificed to the streaming lords, and that meant that it yeah. took away from my box office gross. Coulda, so, woulda, shoulda. Uh, why, Dis- Disney? Why? Disaster. After Jungle Cruise was Paw Patrol with 1.7 million, which means it has crossed the 100 million worldwide mark. Good for Paw Patrol. I know. Look at them. Uh, the Eyes of Tammy Faye, which only opened in 450 theaters, garnered $665,000. That's a, a one and a half thousand average, which isn't terrible. It just needed to open in more theaters, I guess. Don't Breathe 2, in its sixth weekend, made just a little under that, made 660000 And it has now reached $31 million domestically. All right, good for them. Now to shift to some international box office stuff. Dune had a small opening in European markets, not the UK, but most of the other ones. I mean, Russia, France, Germany, all that stuff. And it got 37 million. I think actually now that the, because that was the estimated number, now that the actual gross came in, I think it was more like 39 million, Mm. which is very solid because it's tracking ahead of Black Widow and Shang-Chi when they opened in those markets. So, I mean, that is good stuff for Dune. It's coming out October 22nd in the States. It'll also hit HBO Max at that time, but it also just secured a release date in China, the coveted China release date. And Dune is not part of our draft, but as a personal if matter, it, Dude, if it I does incredible, if it does incredible, we're going to feel like dumbasses. No, no, no. Because definitely the nope. HBO Max factor is like the essential reason for why it wouldn't have been a good bet to go for this. Because domestically, it probably still won't do gangbusters. But hopefully it is shaping up to be a little bit of a cultural phenomenon that it will get enough money to earn a sequel. I mean, that's really all I'm cheering for. So it probably won't do crazy, crazy amount. But if it could get over 300 million, 400 million, something like that, I mean, it gets 100 million boost from China, 100 million domestic, does yeah. well in the rest of the international market, and we get that sequel, I mean, that will be thrilling to me. Yeah. So hopefully continued success for Duke. Now... My heart sank this weekend when I looked at my phone and it said that No Time to Die secured its China release date in October 29th. I mean, my heart literally, I did, it was at work and I saw it and my heart just dropped that you are, oh, yes. you are getting such a boost there. You're getting a huge boost there, which is devastating. That is Venom, Venom hasn't got it yet, but I guarantee you it will. Shang-Chi ain't getting it. Eternals ain't getting it. They don't like Chloe Zhao. She ain't get nothing. So if I can continue to get my No Time to Die, my Venom, Spider-Man, it's got to happen. I don't know about Matrix, but I mean, those three films, as long as they get that coveted China market to boost up the box office, things will be looking very good for my my roster. Just absolutely devastating. Now, this weekend, for some box office predictions, the biggest thing coming out this weekend is Dear Evan Hansen. Uh... I, what eight million maybe that's that's just what i'm gonna throw out there uh, eight million at the most i don't think it's going to swallow up anything whole or anything it's just not gonna do that good i agree i think it looks so bad 
from the it first trailer terrible. I saw. Yeah. It, it just looks atrocious. So I don't know who would be enticed to go see it. It's also not that big of a property. It's not that well known. So I can't see why people would really flock out to see it. So as sad as it is to say, I think Shang-Chi will be number one at the box office yet again. Ooh. You will get another boost from that momentum. Uh, but Dear Evan Hansen will probably come in second with something below 10 million. September was mine, my month. It was October will be mine. Again, it's so frustrating. Yeah, it really will be. My movies, though, they're like opening within a week of each other. So they're going to cannibalize each other, which mm. I don't know why they did this. I mean, not like they cared, but why couldn't these studios have just spread out a little more? Spread the love. They're but anyway, October will be you, Ryan. Yes. You, you got to get more paranoid about it. But I shall overcome. I have faith. Actually, as an update, I was crunching the numbers before. Yes. I am at 204 million from Jungle oh. Cruise, my one Wonderful. movie that has released thus far. You have three re- movies that have released thus far mm-hmm. F9, Suicide Squad, and Shang-Chi. Yep. You are officially at $1.2 billion. Ooh. You have crossed a... the billion dollar mark. You I'm a billion dollars A ahead. billion above me, yes. So you've got Spider-Man to make up that distance. Yes. And, maybe, and probably then some. And then your other movies have to, to beat out my last two, which is Eternals, which will make a buttload of money, and Ghostbusters, which is a toss-up. So, I don't think Eternals will make a buttload of money. We'll see. We will see. I'm, I'm going to fight you on it. I think it will. Okay, but we'll do it. That was gonna, your... Come on, put them up. Put them up. First round pick was Eternals. It really was. My first round pick, Spider-Man. We'll see how those fare out. I think Spider-Man will, of course, do incredibly. But with no time to die. And No time Venom, to die with the China market will get you... I think they're going to get boost because your films, your remaining two films aren't going to be big in China and they're probably not even going to get released in China. Mine are going to do gangbusters in China. You're probably going to make a billion dollars with Venom and No Time to Die combined, is my guess. And then you have Matrix and Spider-Man on top of that, and Spider-Man is almost guaranteed to make a billion in and of itself. So I feel like I could probably hand it to you now, but I won't, because Eternals could come back. And if Ghostbusters does at least moderately well, it could be close. It'd be closer we'll than we think it might be. We will see. But yes, I have a lot of ground to make up in beginning in a few weeks. I will start making that ground up. But all right, we will now move on to the main event of the show, where we will talk about Alfred Hitchcock. Give us some information about this well-known director. All right, so just to give you a little bit of background on Alfred Hitchcock, he was he was born in the Leytonstone, London, in 1899. So he's an 1800s baby, and I think the most prevalent thing about his childhood, about his growing up, is that he had a strict father. And he one of the things I read was that he says he does not remember if he had any friends growing up, like any playmates. Like, he just doesn't remember, which is kind of odd. But yeah. the one story the one story he likes to share about his childhood to a lot of different interviewers, and he talked to Francois Truffaut about this, which we'll talk about later, was there was a story where when he was five, his father handed him a note 
that he didn't read, and he told him to go to the police station, hand it to a police officer. So he went to the police station, he handed the police officer the note, and the the police officer locked him in a cell and said, this is what we do to naughty boys. And he left him in there for a few minutes, the five-year-old, and then sent him on his way. And to the and after Hitchcock never knew what he did wrong to be put in a cell, he never knew what was in the note, and it developed. It caused him to have a lifelong fear of policemen. Wow. Yeah, so I have no explanation as to how that happened. Uh, he was he joined the war effort for the first world war when in 1917 when he was 18 and he was deemed fit for sedentary work so he did a lot of uh, stuff in country in britain rather than fighting the, the good fight across the sea uh, after the war he worked at a publication house where he submitted short stories and worked in the advertisement department where he would draw a lot of graphics that would be used as advertisements and use that to leverage his way into a job designing title cards. And then that led him to uh, working as an AD, which led him to working on scripts and designing sets and producing an early silent film called Woman to Woman. He met a bunch of people on that film and that led him to making a buttload of his own movies in this period of time that transitioned from no sound to sound, and then from black and white to color. So he really had this whole career that spans such a, a huge transition period in filmmaking. So you can see all kinds of films. You can see silent films from Hitchcock, black and white films, color films. You can see a whole, like, he's working from the 20s all the way into the 70s. So he, he really was active during this entire time period. And there's few directors you can say were active this entire time. It has a lot of notable works from all these time periods. So he's really an important person to look at, regardless of even the quality of his work, just looking at the historical context of these films and the quality of these films as compared to others in that time period and seeing his evolution as he evolves with filmmaking in and of itself. Hitchcock became a celebrity because of his iconic presence as a host of Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, which was a show that ran in the 50s where each episode was a different short story that was written. He was just the host of the show. And he had very little involvement in the writing and directing because he was always busy making his own films. But he hosted the show and his iconic profile and his witty, dry humor that he would present himself with made him an instant celebrity and a very recognizable face and body, I suppose. Uh, he became an American citizen in 1955. And in the 60s, he did a week-long series of interviews with French film critic and filmmaker Francois Truffaut and Truffaut recorded all of these these conversations and wrote a famous book called Hitchcock or uh, cinema as described by Hitchcock wherever you find it and so you can find this book out there it's just an entire dialogue between Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock which is something I'd be very interested in it's impacted a lot of different filmmakers like Wes Anderson Martin Scorsese uh all different kinds, Spike Jones, all different kinds of people who were just impacted by this book alone. Just it's just Alfred Hitchcock just talking about all his movies and his life and how he views movies and how he views his own movies. And I would be very interested in this book. In 1962, he was offered a CBE, which is a commandership of the British Empire. It's an it's kind of like a, a title that you would give to somebody for doing incredible work in the arts, which is what he did, or in other fields, and being a British citizen, he rejected it and was later offered in 1980 
a KBE, a knighthood commandership of the British Empire. So he was Sir Alfred Hitchcock for a couple months, and then he died from kidney failure in 1980. So that is everything we've got on Hitchcock. We have not done an analysis on a specific person in a while. Last time we did one was Aaron Sorkin, which was a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. And this is unique in and of itself because this is the first analysis we've done on a person that has passed away. So I, he's the oldest filmmaker that we've looked at. And so it's going to be a lot of movies from the period of his time where he worked from 1953 to 1963, which is kind of his peak years. Mm -hmm. I think he's an incredible filmmaker. He's definitely in my top 10. Uh, he has such a unique style and he has so many films that are beloved by myself and many others. And I think, He's just an important figure to look at, which is why we're taking the time to go ahead and analyze his movies and his style and talk about what makes him unique and what makes him the true master of suspense. Of course, exactly. So as you alluded to, a very distinct style. Of course, the moniker master of suspense is well-deserved. He demonstrates that. Maybe it was in the Truffaut interviews that he gave this example, but one that is often talked about is how he says it's better to show the audience a bomb under the table and then let the conversation between the two uh, participants play out. And throughout that entire conversation, of course, we, the audience knows those not there's a bomb ticking underneath them and we are in a state of suspense. We are waiting to see what's going to happen. That he says is better than just showing these people arriving to the table and out of nowhere, a big bomb go goes off. That gives you shock, but you are you aren't given that sense of suspense, uh, which builds up over time and is able to layer on itself over and over, and that just makes it more enthralling, makes it more engaging for the audience instead of just that brief little flash of shock and surprise, which may be fun, but I mean it quickly fades away. So that philosophy is one that guides Hitchcock's filmmaking style, and we see that throughout all the films. I mean, the ones that we're going to talk about comes up a lot. So we will point those out. He also is very fond of these stories about an ordinary man caught up in extraordinary circumstances. We'll also point out how a lot of these films in particular from his heyday, the 53 to 63 period, uh, they very much focus on that. And that's a certainly resonant theme because I mean, all of us are ordinary peeps. And so to be able to see people like us, to go through these extraordinary circumstances it thrills us because it's that vicarious experience of oh what would we do if we're in that situation but we don't have to actually deal with all the dangers and whatnot we can just see people play it out on screen and enjoy that he also very much deals with identity especially mistaken identity or concealed identity mm -hmm. dual identities people are not who they seem to be in hitchcock stories um so that is another major theme that comes up time and time again through his works. Also, the man definitely focuses a lot on sexual attraction and repression of desires. Oh, yeah. Physical attraction, all that stuff. So, I mean, Hitchcock knew what worked back in the 50s, I guess. Sex yeah, sells. Yeah. Um, he also has very obsessive characters that get really fixated on something and they're just driven by that and that alone. So we see that in many of his films as well and finally he deals a lot with the mcguffins you want to talk about that dylan yeah dude so one of the things that i love most about hitchcock is that he popularized the use of mcguffins one of the first most famous mcguffins was rosebud 
in uh, Citizen Kane, of course. But a MacGuffin is basically when you have uh, either an object or a plot line that you think is driving the plot, essentially, and instead is just a distraction from what the real plot is. And it's used as a way to subvert audience expectations and to drive a plot forward, even though its relevance to the actual story is completely unimportant. And all four movies, I will argue, that we're going to be talking about tonight have MacGuffins in them that are very important, some more important than others. And I think just I think it's a great idea. I think it's a great plot device to use. And Hitchcock definitely popularized it. Um, some of the other things that I love about Hitchcock is he likes, like you talked about identity, he likes to do the wrong man on the run kind of theme where you've got uh, a case of mistaken identity, per someone who's on the run from law enforcement, which is, of course, driving his lifelong fear of police and law enforcement. And it's it's the innocent person who's on the run from the law for a crime they didn't commit, which I'm sure is a deep fear of his. The idea of being chased by police officers for a crime he didn't commit, I'm sure, is something that he had nightmares about or of some sort, because it definitely is very prevalent in his work, especially North by Northwest, which we will talk about later. Uh, I love the idea of taking ordinary characters, like you said, and then peeling back the layers slowly and showing their overall desires. There's a lot of not only sexual desires that are being shown in a lot of his work, but also violent desires that ordinary people don't usually show as a part of their front. It's usually deep within themselves, part of that animal subconscious. And he takes that and over the course of the movie, we'll bring it out in a lot of his different characters. There's several movies where you can see characters just plotting murders, uh, rope, uh, strangers on a train, dial him for murder. These movies where these characters are just planning out and plotting these murders. And it just like slowly comes out of them as the movie develops. And so I think that's fantastic. Just his idea of taking ordinary characters and creating these very tense, crazy things happening to them is just such a, a wonderful idea. And so I think we can go ahead and, dive into our first movie that we're going to talk about we're going to do it in chronological chronological order starting in 1953 with rear window which i would probably say is my favorite of his movies wait what I, yeah it is i, I thought really when, when we talked about it you were like oh rear window eh. like i was like no 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 let's, no no, no let's but it's vertigo window. vertigo is eh. are you sure though because i i thought you were all about no, North no. By northwest and i was like bro I rear do. window is where it's at I do love North by Northwest, but Vertigo is the one that's definitely eh. Yeah. So I should not... rewatch it, but I'm definitely not on the Vertigo train. But I we're think not... Rear Window is probably my favorite. Yeah, we're not talking about Vertigo. We cut that one out. But Thank I do goodness. think it is worth a second watch. I also initially was not too fond of it, but mm -hmm. peeling back the layers of like the deeper themes of it, but then also yeah. the filmmaking techniques that he uses. I, I mean, obviously course. inventing the whole which you call it thing dolly zoom zoom shift yeah uh i mean that's incredible and then the other things that he does in that film like in particular when he sees her for the first time she comes out in the green light and then they start like spinning like the room starts spinning as they're looking at each other mm -hmm. and he's trying to gauge whether or not like oh snap this is finally her she's come back to me that yeah. stuff is just brilliant in retrospect but rear mm -hmm. window the first time I saw it, which the only time I saw it, I was unfortunately not able to rewatch it in preparation for this. I mm -hmm. really, really enjoyed it. I love Rear Window. So impressive because the man essentially just keeps us confined to this one space, this one apartment that uh, James Stewart's LB slash Jeff is living in, um, which is a great choice 
as the director because his entire field of view is our field of view. I mean, we're mm-hmm. stuck in this one place as he is. So that aligns us with that character. But also the fact that he's able to have this almost two hour long movie be so engaging and interesting when so much of it is him peering out a window and looking yeah. at what's going on across the across the way. I mean, that show is fantastic. And it speaks to the man's talent. He's able to create suspense out of these situations where on the surface, there isn't much to be found. Mm-hmm. I think he understands that voyeurism is something that we all partake in, whether we try to or not. And the idea of explicit attempts at voyeurism that this character is going through, how he's legit just stuck in a room. And so all he can do is just stare out the window at his neighbors is something that's already intriguing and adding in a murder mystery into that element is, is incredible. And what he does with the extra characters just out in this, this area is just absolutely phenomenal. He had, um, they designed this whole lot because it's just one location. He designed this whole like, block lot of what is supposed to be new york i'm assuming yes yeah most likely yeah most likely and he cast a bunch of extras and he put them in these rooms and he gave them earpieces and he would communicate with them what he wanted them to do and they would film from a great distance so he because the only other alternative is shouting through a bullhorn and that's just exhausting so of course he went with the idea of using earpieces and i mean it just comes out flawlessly because it's taking the viewer and putting it in the perspective of LB Jeffries, the character and putting us through the same voyeurism that he's partaking in, which is, it's something that we'll see again in psycho that we'll talk about later. This idea of voyeurism, putting the audience in those shoes that is exciting for us to partake in. Uh, I will say that the one thing that I really like about rear window is I found that there are very certain genre, very specific genres of films that I really like. And we talked earlier, I think, in the show about one of them, which is the diehard style of a single hero in a single right. location fighting terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that I love is just single location mystery, just taking characters, putting them in a single location and then blocking them into that location and creating mystery. It's why And Then There Were None is my favorite book. It's why I love Murder on the Orient Express, the, the movie by Cindy Lumet. It's why I love The Thing. It's why I love uh, The Hateful Eight. There's just so many examples of, of how this trope does work really, really well. And this rear window is one of the finest examples of it because it does so much else with all these characters. And it gives us a lot of characters who we don't even know their names. They're just fake names that this guy has come up with. Uh, Miss Lonely Hearts, Miss Torso, <laughs> the the couple on the, the roof. It, it just creates these characters just from a distance completely, these, these neighbor characters. And it's just nonstop excitement as we watch these characters unfold because he understands how to utilize these different pieces and move them like a chessboard to keep our interest at peak levels. And so I just absolutely love, love, love everything he does in this movie in terms of manipulating the scenery and the characters within that scenery to keep it exciting. Right. For sure. And I also think another element of why I truly, truly love this film is the way it is able to have all of that, have all that surface level, interesting suspense stuff, that is all fantastic and alone would make it a great film. But the way that it also has this deeper thematic undertone about romance and the, mm-hmm. the aspects of relationships where LB, Jeff, he is currently dating Lisa played by Grace Kelly and their impending marriage is frightening to him because while he sees her as perfect, he just doesn't think it's going to end up working out. Uh, 
he's a traveling man. He's like a journalist, right? Photojournalist mm-hmm. who yeah. goes around the world and gets into these really tough spots, uncomfortable living situations. And she is a rich socialite. And so he just doesn't think that she's going to be up to that sort of life. And he's not mm-hmm. willing to give up that sort of life. Um, mm-hmm. And we see with each of those other inhabitants of this neighborhood, each of the people that he's spying on, they're representative of some stage in a romantic relationship. You have the old married couple who the husband of which kills the wife. So that obviously does not say great things about the marriage. We have this newlywed couple where the husband's already fed up. Uh, we have this lonely hearts who's unable to find the genuine connection that she's looking for in a relationship. Um, the guy who's playing the piano, what was his sort of situation? He was, I think his entire purpose is just to supply music as the background. Cause I think he only wanted to use diegetic sound. Yeah. So he, he utilizes a songwriter in the corners to echo music throughout the scenery. Cause right. he does, there's no like relationships he pursues other than like the one woman he's flirting with and showing his music pieces. Right. So I think the entire purpose is just to introduce the score Me, in yeah. a diegetic way. But then even that, maybe that's like the beginning of relationship, like him pining yeah, after yeah, somebody yeah. and then it starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, dancing woman who has to fight off all these people pursuing her trying to court her as she waits for her her man to come back from the war or wherever he was off at um so you see all those different relationships going on and him getting involved in their lives like looking out the window as you said it's part of its voyeurism part of its this desire for escapism mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be confined to his wheelchair and whatnot um and so looking out to those other relationships like multiple times they bring up how he's sort of rationalizing his his fears about his relationship with Lisa and his desire to get out of it, just cut it off to save himself the trouble of it. He rationalizes that by looking at the state of the relationships of his neighbors. But by the end of it, when Lisa's helping him, because of course he can't leave the apartment at all since he's wheelchair bound, but she is able to go and do stuff. Um, and so she helps him solve this murder mystery and she proves to him that despite her being a socialite she's able to keep up with this sort of exciting life where things get uncomfortable things get daring um, but she's able to handle that and she she wants to because she loves jeff and she wants to do that sort of life so i really really love that other element to this movie it just gives it a whole nother dimension and it's really effective mm-hmm and like we talked about earlier when we were talking about the different themes and styles that Hitchcock uh, attributes to one of the ones we talked about was the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin in this film, which I think is brilliant, is the unknown object that's in the flower beds. I mean, mm-hmm. I still want to know what it is to this day, even though it's completely <laughs> irrelevant. There's there's just so much development over like this man curating these flower beds, the dog sniffing at the flower beds, him killing the dog because he was too close. Like it's the entire, it drives the entire plot forward because there's the, he hits the standstill of, um, of the detective explaining everything away and explaining that the, the woman was seen and that everything is fine. And so they hit that standstill and then he goes and he kills the dog because he was getting too close to the flower beds. And that's what pushes the rest of this story forward is that he hid something in the flower beds then took it out later. And it doesn't even matter what it is. It doesn't matter that they were looking for it in the flower beds, that Grace Kelly went all the way up to the apartment to find it and find the wedding ring. Doesn't even matter. It's just completely irrelevant. 
so that's I think is wonderful. Another MacGuffin, like a slight MacGuffin, was uh, when the police detective mentions that Mister what's his name Thornwald, Mister Thornwald was seen leaving the apartment building with his wife. We don't know who this mysterious woman is pretending to be the wife. We just assume that it is some woman that Mister Thornwald is having an affair with, and we're trying to figure out who this woman is. Where did she go? She obviously left. And went somewhere to send a letter back to show that the wife was still alive. So obviously she's an important part of it, but ultimately it, it ends up not even mattering. So that's another thing that is just a piece of the puzzle that, I mean, it, it matters in this, the scheme of it. it's covering their tracks, but it's not a clue that pans out in any way for JB LB Jeffries, the, the pseudo detective here. Right. Every everything has to be confined to what he can learn in this chair in this apartment. And the main thing that he learns is based on what's in that flower beds. And that is what pushes him forward into finding the murderer out. And I oh dude. The the best thing part of this movie is when the cops and Grace Kelly are in the apartment and they're arresting Grace Kelly and he is he is looking through the, LB Jeffries looking through the binoculars into the apartment and he looks at the murderer and the murderer just turns and he makes complete eye contact with the camera. And that's just such a, a scary thing to do it all. And if you've ever partaken in voyeurism or just general people watching, if you're just watching somebody on the street and they turn and look at you, make eye contact with you, it's uncomfortable, right? Like it's, it's just, it make it's awkward because they know you were watching them. You know that they know you were watching them and it's just an awkward thing to do. Imagine you're watching someone you know is a killer and they right. identify <laughs> you like it's it's hauntingly horrifying. So I, it's just such a good way to drive home that feeling in the audience. Like I, I squirm every time I do it because it's such a good stare and it's such a good feeling that you're hammering in. For sure. Yeah, the whole bit as well of her going across the street and into mm -hmm. his apartment and then, you know, he's coming back and you're like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, like that's suspense, edge of the seat material. Yeah, that's pure suspense. And it's just in one location and it's just us sitting down watching something go across the street. Like that's, that's how brilliant. effective Hitchcock is at making this stuff suspenseful. All right. So what would you rate it out of five telephoto lenses? The full five, a hundred percent, the full five, Ooh, full five for me as well. This is a certified classic. Incredible. Now the next one we're going to talk about, which came out six years after this one in 1959, was North by Northwest. It is Alfred Hitchcock's sort of divulsion into a full action thriller, action espionage spy thriller. Uh, it is subverting a little bit because it's following his themes rather than typical espionage themes. Instead of following a dedicated spy, you're following Cary Grant, who is Roger Thornhill, an average everyday newspaper man or lawyer. Or He's something. an advertising man. Advertising man. Yeah. He's just a normal guy. And he gets caught up in this whole espionage with the CIA and these terrorists and all this crazy stuff. And I just, I remember watching this for the first time. Did we watch this in editing with Tim Ritter? We did. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That was the first time I ever watched this movie and it just blew me away. It's so ahead of its time as an action thriller. It's so exciting. I just, I just love it so much. I, I love talking about the editing in it too. When uh, Cary Grant is hiding out as one of the, what was it? it was the train lobby people and they're yeah, the in the big crowd and they're pulling the people by the red hats and gets closer and closer and closer as you think you're going to find him and then they don't find him. I mean, it's just so exciting the way they edit this film and the way they 
put these montages together is exciting through and through. A hundred percent. Yeah, this, I also, that was the first time I saw it. And I remember thinking it was good, but it wasn't, it didn't blow me away at that point. But when I watched it in the Hitchcock class with Barry, I wrote down in part of my notes, I was like, this was so good. Like, I it didn't hits. remember it being that amazing. It is it so hard. So great. And then I watched it again recently. This was the one film I was able to rewatch recently. And it still is so incredible. Like, every single scene is compelling and interesting. There's something about it, whether it be an action thing, if it's just purely conversational, whether it's like a comedic beat with him being drunk in, in, the, in mm-hmm. the slammer and doing that whole thing. I mean, every bit of it is interesting. It, like, Modern audiences, I think for sure, even despite how much tastes have evolved and how like acting sensibilities and whatnot have changed, this still is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Still so yeah, effective. I feel like a lot of Hitchcock's films are timeless in they a very really strong are. way. Because I feel like, because I know a lot of people who are not big into films and probably would not want to watch a lot of older movies, especially black and white ones. And I just feel like I could pick almost any Hitchcock film and just toss it to them and they'll have like a good time no matter what, with especially the four we're talking about today. Like there's just something exciting about all of them, something just so well done and timeless about all of them because he's focusing on creating well thought out characters, exciting plot lines and just incredible stories and just incredible filmmaking overall. The way the attention to detail that he has in in how he builds suspense, it's why he's the master of suspense is he knows how to draw an audience in and keep them invested. And that's how you make a timeless film is you create something that will interest people and suspenseful movies will do that always a hundred percent and yes for some of those major hitchcockian themes that we talked about i mean obviously this is the quintessential ordinary man caught up in extraordinary circumstances of course Um, it also plays a lot with the identity theme this man is mistaken for kaplan some secret agent uh and i what i think also is interesting is the way that he oftentimes will lean into that false identity in order to do something initially it's to try to absolve himself of you know being blamed for being Kaplan um like when he's going and trying on the suit like visiting the hotel of Kaplan and trying to find this man Uh, and then later on once he at that point he didn't know Kaplan wasn't real yet um but Mm. he he once again leaned into that role so that he could just go and uh antagonize Eve essentially because of her betrayal he goes into the where she is at the art auction, sees Van Damme and all those other people there. I mean, the villains that were trying to kill him. This man is so upset and so petty that he still goes up, puts himself in danger just to uh, you know, say some unkind words to her. Mm-hmm. So that I think is really interesting. I also think the way that in contrast to Rear Window, where everything that we know, LB knows. We learn information at the same rate as him. And this one, we get a lot more information than Roger Thornhill does throughout the story. Yeah. Like we learn way before him that Kaplan is not real. We learn way before him that um, Eve is in with Van Damme in some sort of way. We we do learn with him that Eve is a double agent. Um, but a lot of those things we learned before him. And so we see him in these situations with that added information about the extent to which He's that danger, and that also adds to the suspense. A great example of this is the whole crop dust scene. We know at this point that Eve is in with Van Damme. We know that she didn't actually call Kaplan because it doesn't exist. She was instead calling and arranging things with one of Van Damme's goons. 
She gives an address to Roger Thornhill. He thinks he's going to meet Kaplan. We know that is not going to happen. And so when we're in the crypto scene, this is also a great way for like directing and editing. The way it starts out, just these long establishing shots, gets us acclimated to the landscape. We see all the important things that are nearby, like the massive empty road, the crop duster off in distance, the crops that are nearby, all these things that come into play later on. So that's very crucial for establishing a scene and making action believable. Mm -hmm. We need to have a sense of the geography of a place. Um, yeah. But we also get a lot of POV shots. We're in Roger's uh, perspective of him viewing the cars that pass by and scrutinizing them. And he does the thing where there's three. And of course, we're sort of primed with the rule of three to expect, okay, the third one, something's going to happen. And he's anticipating it because he's like, oh, I'm going to meet this mysterious figure finally. But we're anticipating it because we're like, something bad is going to happen. But where is it going to happen? Which car is going to be the one that does it? Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, we're on the edge of our seat this whole time. And I think there was no music for this. Something no, like that. Like, just no I don't music. remember any just music. Purely just us sitting in the scene. Um, very realistic yeah. POV shots, putting aligning us with him as we wait for what's about to happen which we don't know yet until of course the iconic crop duster thing the plane it's flying at him is so amazing it's so it sets it up so well why is uh, you trying to kill him with the plane makes no sense but yeah no i have it no looks idea. so good so you have to forgive it it's just and it's it's, amazing. it's just set up so well with all these big long establishing shots you are established that there is a crop duster there and the fact that it is such an audible distinctly audible sound this plane you could just put it in the background of any shot even if it's not in the shot and you're just always constantly aware that there's a plane somewhere nearby and you know already that it's a crop duster so you're just sitting there this entire time not even thinking about it just thinking it's part of the ambiance and then all of a sudden it's flying and then it just turns and it just starts going towards him and he's a little bit confused by it it's getting closer and it's getting closer and then he starts taking off and it gets lower and lower and dude when he ducks and it just sweeps down on top of him oh iconic Incredible and iconic. Heart pumping, man. So yeah. good. That is incredible. Uh, definitely the most famous sequence of the entire movie, I think. The Mount yeah. Rushmore sequence is also led that whole set piece is fantastic. Which is Again. also impractical. Well, yes. <laughs> Again, imagine owning... <laughs> imagine, I mean, the ultimate Bond villain aesthetic is owning uh, a res <laughs> lodge resort at the top of Mount Rushmore. For real. And being a foreign, like, part of the Cold War, too. Yeah. What a stab in the back towards America Incredible. to live on top of the heads the of our presidents. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that stuff's great. Also, I mean, Hitchcock was very involved with a lot of the writing of the scripts. He never got credit on any of them. He wasn't the actual writers for any of them, mm -hmm. but apparently he was always very involved in making the writers do revisions to satisfy what he wants. Like, that's why the crop duster scene is in here. Um, like, that's something he had in his head for a long time. He's like, hey, fit this in. Um, and just something else I wanted to call it is the banter in this, the snappy, witty dialogue that happens throughout. It also hits so well. It's so good. I love the the one where he's in the art auction and that whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. And then Van Damme is talking to him about, wow, you really overplay your performances. Like talking about all those different identities that he's assuming Roger was taking on. Mm -hmm. When, of course, I mean, those were <laughs> a lot of the realities. But he says... Uh, Roger replies, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. And Man Dan replies, your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. Just so good. 
That's very, a, very good. That's incredible. There's other like just funny random lines scattered throughout where he's locked in the, the bed and she's like, patience is a virtue. He says, so is breathing. That's incredible. The one where he was at the plane and getting told that he's going to have to continue this ruse, going to continue being Kaplan. Um, and he's like, well, that may kill me. And I have a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders depending on me. So Very I can't good. get killed. Like all that stuff is just fantastic. And again, it's, it's something that engages you even if you're in, like, again, to the modern sensibilities, like a lot of old films tend to have wooden dialogue. Like there, we saw West Side Story recently, and there are certainly some moments in there, which feels very dated, feels yeah. very much. I mean, um, of course. Yeah. So this one, which came out before West Side Story, is it's able to story. have dialogue that really is effective even to this day. I mean, that's great stuff. Um, of course. One, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to talk about the MacGuffin for this movie. So, oh, so no. basically, it's very... To me, of the four we're talking about, this is like the least MacGuffin of the MacGuffins. Mm -hmm. It's just the character of Kaplan. Like, yeah. it, it's what drives the beginning of the plot. It's what pushes everything forward. And ultimately, we learn that Kaplan does not exist and the character is ultimately irrelevant. It's just used to push the plot forward and create that suspense. And I think it's... I mean, it'd be better if there were... It's, it's better than if there was like an actual Kaplan. It's because, I mean, that's what solidifies the second half of the plot is that he has to take on this role of pretending to be Kaplan in order to save Eve at the very end. I think it's just it's just very fantastic the way they subvert audience expectations in that way. And it's also uh, so telling of espionage that they would fabricate an entire agent in order to sell a lie to, to Cold War operatives. That's so good. Um, I would say maybe the MacGuffin, which it doesn't come up a lot, but like towards the end, it's that statue that they keep the film reel in that has all the information, yeah, that's government secrets. Um, so that would be the like most typical example of like an actual physical, physical object. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you're right. Kaplan, I think, is certainly the MacGuffin for most of it. Mm -hmm. um, just some other things to call out. Some great shots. I mean, obviously the iconic one that's used for the posters and whatnot, mm -hmm. the plane over his shoulder as he's running away. Of the ties flapping. Uh, that's great. I absolutely love the top-down aerial shot. Dude, me of too. <laughs> me too. It's, it's so good. And then they have them running, and it's just it looks like a painting. And then you see the characters running, and it just like no. It's just such an odd experience to have to watch a painting move. Like it's just so beautifully designed as as like a, an element of the cinematography. I'm so blown away that, and I love the very beginning when the opening credits with all the lines and it transitions yeah, those are good. It like fades into the building. I love that transition. Yes, that is fantastic. Um, also, again, the score, I mean, we're focused on the directing, but the score is also incredible. Um, but yeah, that, that top-down aerial shot, ooh, I love it. As you said, it looks like a painting moving, but then it also, I mean, feeling the massive stakes of what's going on here, like now he's caught up in this web of this global Cold War situation, that sort of getting implied there and then also seeing how tiny he is against all of that like just a little speck of him running going mm -hmm. across the um the sidewalk yeah. showing how tiny he is compared to these grand circumstances that he's now faced with in global uh, politics as a whole yeah so good because so it's good. the un yeah um like that's that's just fantastic i also love the shot like i think it's one of the greatest like banter scenes between like the romance thing between Eve and um, 
Roger Thornhill when they first meet on that train and they're sitting down um, in the eating compartment train, whatever it is. Yeah, the dining um, compartment. Yeah, that I think is incredible. Uh, and then specifically the shot when he he gives her the cigarette to light um, and then, well, he has the match, gives the match to light the cigarette and he pulls away, but then she stops his hand from going back, pulls it towards her, and then blows out the match herself. Fantastic. Just incredible. Like the way that mm-hmm. essentially shows us, I mean, it's all the seduction stuff is in there, but then also yeah. the way it shows us that she has the power in this situation more than mm-hmm. we know at that time and that certainly Roger Thornhill knows. It's just great stuff. Again, like on the surface, it's incredible. But then beneath it, the depth that it has, oh, so fantastic. Absolutely. Mind-blowing. The ending when is is probably very iconic as well, along with <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the crop dusting scene. It's probably the most uh, not erotic, erotic ending. <laughs> For sure. Where where you have him and he's pulling up Eve and then he's like, I got you, I got you. And then it, it instantly, it's a very quick ending. And I remember being very, very shocked by it when we watched it in Tim Burton class. So abrupt. He, he pulls her up from Mount Rushmore and then there's a match cut, which is probably why he showed it in editing is one of those editing tricks where it's cutting to him pulling her into the compartment because it's a callback to earlier when they were on the train and they were hiding in the little luggage area. And he pulls her up into that little area and they cuddle and he calls her Mrs. Thornhill. And then the uh, phallic train caves into the into the tunnel. Yes. Very quickly. And yeah. then the end. <laughs> it was a very abrupt ending. On retrospect, it, it's not as drawing, and I don't dislike it as much as I initially did. Yeah. Because um, I can see, like, I can see the match cut. Like, that's pretty cool. Like we don't need to go over the whole like him them actually getting up and then talking with the police officers about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like we don't necessarily like, need that stuff. Yeah, I just feel like there's no more story to tell. Right. Once the characters are dead and the bad guys are caught and he's just saving her, there's no more story to tell other than the fact that they have a happy ending. So but I'm it is satisfied. Just, it is very abrupt though, to go from the feelings of still like, oh no, is she gonna fall? Are are we gonna be able to pull her up? To just immediately crashing into the okay, happy ending. Like it condensed yeah. that whole thing into just ten seconds. Certainly, and it, was it really quite, it is quick. Yes, quite quick, but very much. All right. So, out of five crop dust kamikazes, what would you give North by Northwest? A full five yet again. Rep. I am also going to give it a full five. It's just let's go. It's one of those movies that has everything, man. It's a spy thriller. It's the adventure mystery. It's romance. It's a romantic comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Like it. Is so amazing and it fires on all cylinders. Also, Cary Grant is incredible. He really is. It's just Gorgeous amazing. Man. It has all those classic Hitchcockian themes that you want in it, all those suspenseful mm-hmm. moments. It just has so much. It's so beautiful. North by Northwest, full five. Full five across the boards. Now we're going to talk about what is arguably the most famous Hitchcock movie. In 1960, Hitchcock released Psycho, which became synonymous with his own name. I mean, everybody saw this movie. Everybody loved this movie just about. It was very it was controversial because it was so ahead of its time. It was very graphic compared to a lot of movies that had come out. Had a toilet. Had a toilet toilet flush. First movie, first movie to show a toilet flushing. Very controversial at the time. He's groundbreaking, man. Had the dog zoo invented that. 
and had to toilet flush the toilet. Incredible. <laughs> Shoved the train into a tunnel. I mean, he wow. knew no limits, man. Yeah, he said, he said, uh, showing sex without showing sex. I got that in, in the bag. <laughs> so Psycho is, of course, just absolutely ahead of its time. It's it's terribly brilliant. Like incredible all the way through. I mean, we watched this lot two weeks ago together, three weeks ago together. Oh my God, it's been so long. Oh, I know. It's been so much longer than I thought it was. Time flies. The beginning of September, we watched it together. Uh, I liked it more this time than I remember liking it. I'll be honest with you. Like, I always loved this movie, but watching it this last time in the theater with the big screen. Something about it was just so much more electrifying and so much more present. And I think it's, a lot of that because I was there. With, it's because you were there, of course, <laughs> holding my hand the whole time because I was so scared. Yeah. But there's something so electrifying about uh, Bernard Herrmann's score. Like it, it just stands out when you have the surround sound experience pulling you in, um, getting it, be, being able to see every little detail on the big screen, and being able to focus on all the different angles he puts the camera at to give a lot of different states of mind to the characters is really well done. And I think knowing the ending does make it a lot more fun to watch because you can see the devices he uses to try and hide that ending. Right. Yeah. Certainly when you're coming at it from like analyzing it and seeing yeah. how well all the pieces are put together, it is helpful to know that ending. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this is, that was my third time seeing it mm -hmm. in that room. I seen it on the big screen all three times. And it is certainly very good. I knew, I mean, everyone knows of the big shower scene. I mean, that is, of course, iconic. So everyone sort of recognizes that. Um, and it's funny because it loses a bit of its punch because it's not as game-changing as it was back in the day. Yeah, um, Like Barry explains how, I mean, this just was not done prior to this point. You have a main character, a major star as a main character, and that's just the story. It's their story the whole way through. Here, for 40 minutes, that's the case. And then she gets killed, brutally murdered in the shower mm. to that iconic score. And that's just something that didn't happen. And then we shift protagonist to the killer. Well, we don't know that yet, but to our boy Norman Bates. And we spend like 10 or 15 minutes with him cleaning up the murder of this woman we were just following for the past yeah. 40 minutes and had built an attachment to and cared about her story with stealing the money and then bringing it back um, so she doesn't ruin her life. We get invested in that story. We shift to Norman Bates and we sort of have that feeling of, well, we don't want him because at that point we're like, oh, he's just some weird, awkward kid, kind of strange, um, mm. getting suppressed, repressed by his mother's possessiveness and controlling nature. We don't want anything bad to happen to him. So he's covering this up. We kind of want that to work. But then we shift to arbogast for a bit and then shift later to the um the boyfriend sam and the sister of marion crane lila and so we just shift multiple times and we're we're yeah. rooted with these characters the whole way through that's another way that hitchcock is so effective i mean the fact that we have essentially these four distinct narratives i mean they're all interrelated obviously but these four different protagonists that we follow i mean we cling to them we care about what's going on um, they each have their own distinct mannerisms, their way of going about things. Um, and it's just really solid how he's able to to make that work. And he was the first to do it, one of the firsts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a lot scarier. Like, it's not, like, scary, scary. But it is a lot scarier than any film from this time period 
would normally be like definitely when you get that reveal at the end and you have the skeleton turning around and the light swinging back and forth it definitely Ooh. yeah it was definitely a tense scene and of course the build up to that shower scene is very very well done when you have the shower curtain in the way and you only have the shout the silhouette of the mother creeping up mm-hmm. and you have no idea what's going to happen that's simply built up really well what i like most about the movie and about the norman bates character is that we as the audience are living through norman bates and fulfilling our sort of criminal fantasy of like again the well you know what i mean the <laughs> sure. typical like like voyeurism yet again he's spying on marion that's typical of hitchcock films apparently we, we talked about him in rear window so he's yet again <laughs> employing voyeurism to put the audience in this sort of mindset to sort of ease us into the idea that a murder can possibly take place in the story even though it has not been set up to do that yet and we've had all these creepy visuals with Norman and his stuffed birds. And then we're put again into this idea of criminal fantasy when we're watching Norman clean up this crime for so long. He's mopping up all of the blood, which when I first watched it, like I had seen the killing part and I was like, oh, that's not too bad. That's not too graphic. Like it's just shots of a knife against skin and there's no like, like really graphic parts of it. And then you have the blood circling down the drain. It's not too crazy. And then they show the shot of just the full tub. And it's just covered in blood. And I was like, this is so much more graphic than I thought would be possible in 1960. Like, of course, this shocked people. Like, I'm not surprised in the slightest. So watching him clean up this whole crime and get rid of this body for a good 10 minutes is definitely something that is uncomfortable for an audience. And it's definitely something that is sort of taking these criminal fantasies that our subconscious animal brains think about and putting it at the forefront of our thoughts, which is definitely an uncomfortable experience for audiences to have. I think that's an incredible thing to do to to put an audience in. This movie has the mother of all MacGuffins. Let's let's talk about that for a second. The the ten thousand dollars that Marion steals that drives True. the first forty <laughs> minutes of the story and then becomes completely irrelevant when it drowns yeah. in a swamp. Completely irrelevant. Like the only thing connecting the rest of the story to that ten thousand dollars is Arbogast. Like he's he's hunting her down to find her and the ten thousand dollars for her uh, employer. I guess his only connection to this story and so it just becomes completely irrelevant which is a great idea because i mean he's creating an entire plot and i'll I'll come back to this with the birds but the idea of creating an entire plot line and then just doing something completely different on top of that plot line is so intelligent and so complicated like you could have done a whole movie where it's just her running from the police because she stole ten thousand dollars and it would have been a pretty good movie but to do a completely separate storyline on top of that storyline and make that original storyline irrelevant it's so like subversive and exciting that it's incredible. And it definitely plays into that uh, ordinary, ordinary man sort of theme that you're talking about. She is an ordinary person and she commits a crime, not completely accidentally, but certainly impulsively, which is something that Alfred Hitchcock always found exciting. The idea of committing a crime either accidentally or impulsively and being on the run. And, and in this instance, she is guilty and on the run as opposed to innocent and on the run, which is a typical theme he imposes. But Definitely, as opposed to all the other movies we're talking about, fear of police is very present in this film, very strongly. The The police yep. officer, the imagery of the police officer is a very scary and staunch figure and very imposing on the frame. He takes up the whole thing. He's very much present. His gaze is very much alarming. And the use of the sunglasses to block his eyes is very much a haunting presence. And so just having that whole plot develop where you're having marion on the run and you have this police figure following her and the imposing law coming around her 
is all just super exciting. And then just to turn it into a murder mystery is, is just incredible. It's just so suspenseful. It just keeps you on your toes the whole time. Anyone, anyone and everyone should like this movie. Like I, there's just something for everybody and it's just so timeless. And I feel like there's so many elements in this movie that just make it so, so effortlessly timeless. I think it's fantastic. Dylan has decreed it. You must love this movie. You must love this movie. I was reading a, a review from the time period, like not from 1960 in Time Magazine, who gave it a 50 out of 100, like a 5 out of 10. Whoa. Yeah, and That's I was insane. like, how could you rate it this? And he was just some kind of like puritanical loser who was like, yeah, this movie's disgusting. It's it's imposing naughty thoughts on the audiences and is horribly provocative. And I'm like, you're so stupid. You're such an idiot. <laughs> I'm glad you're dead. Like, fuck off. Dang, got him. Um, it was just so good. Like, anyone should like this movie. There's just so much excitement about it and so much intrigue that any modern audience should enjoy it as much as people from the 60s did. Even oh, though it's, sure. it is, like, it is ahead of the times in terms of a lot of uh filmmaking techniques but yes it is still a movie from the 60s and yes there are technical limitations that don't make it as perhaps as exciting as a movie from today might be for those with shorter attention spans and so it certainly drags in certain parts but it's still just exciting through and through in, which makes it so ahead of its time so i think everybody should just watch the movie i love it i agree everyone should definitely give it a chance because yeah. it it has so much complexity to it that is certainly something you just you gotta watch it you gotta yeah, see it if, if you like this movie, there's just so many other Hitchcock movies that you would like. Like it is, this would be probably the best gateway film into Hitchcock films because you get the full effect of everything. Like there's a lot of things that won't live up to this movie in a lot of all of his other movies. But, but I mean, if you start with this one, it's definitely a good like ease into everything else. Like you could watch Rear Window after this. You could watch The Birds after this. You could watch. Uh, North by Northwest, Rope, Strangers on a Train, Dialing for Murder, The 39 Steps. There's just so many movies that you could watch that this movie could lead you into. So give Psycho a shot. 100%. Just to talk about some some of the directing Hitchcock does as well, outside of just the, the suspense stuff that we have harped on for a lot of this, he also, in terms of just framing and composition, is able to do a lot of symbolism and foreshadowing. We see that. You brought it up with those taxidermy stuffed birds in the scene where Norman is sitting with Marion and they're talking, um, which is a really engaging conversation scene. Like the twists and turns mm -hmm. that that takes in just one conversation is yep. really quite incredible. Um, and how that, I mean, that essentially is where Marion's arc ends where she yep. decides, Oh, I need to get out of this cage that I have made for myself and mm -hmm. go return that money. I mean, that is a decision she makes there. Of course. Um, but we get a lot about Norman's mentality. We get the beginnings of his relationship with his mother and how that um, certainly has a bit of a demented twist to it. And when he's talking about that, when he gets somewhat aggressive about his mother, we see it cuts to this low angle shot of Norm and in the background is the owl Don't or hawk. <laughs> Norm. It Norm makes me cheers. Norm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so Norman, uh, he, the low angle cut shot of him, and in the background is that owl or hawk mm -hmm. or whatever it is, some sort owl. of bird of prey with its outstretched wings and its talons extended, all that like in the attack mode. We see, I mean, that's reflective of his aggression and the danger that he poses. 
And then when that sort of recedes and he goes back to his more mild manner state, he leans back in the chair, we cut to a different angle and the bird behind him is just some regular bird sitting perched as mm -hmm. it normally would be. I mean, that's just great stuff hinting yeah. at the darker elements of Norman's psyche. Yeah. His framing is definitely top tier in this film. Just Ooh. through and through. The way he's using his camera and the angles to help even conceal the twist. Using the overhead angle for when the mother kills Arbogast and getting the audience accustomed to that angle helps him get away with using that angle again. When Norman carries the mother out, like which hides the, the fact that it's a skeleton and not an actual person. So just he's getting away with a lot of things here, which I think is absolutely incredible. Uh, the the we talked about the shot where we see the dead body, which is a very scary shot to me. Like the way that it's built up and the slow turnaround, it it definitely still hits. To it, does. it does, it does. And so many years later, I remember later. when we were watching it, and some of the people were laughing at that scene. I, I don't understand. don't understand that. This is when why he dude when he comes out and he's like he's dressed as the mother. Like that is relatively scary like he's has a knife in his hand he's right his charged. smile as left. well though like the look on his face is just yeah. terrifying yeah you see the marbles are not all there at that moment he's just gone it's not norman bates anymore it's just yeah. wickedness and people were laughing at that mm -hmm. like that is uh it was unfathomable that is when meme culture goes too far and everything becomes yeah. funny like people can't even look at that as what it is very frustrating yeah. but for that's us why, it that's why i dislike showing a lot of our friends older movies i remember when we watched do the right thing and they were laughing at radio rahim bro and they wait, still make they jokes were laughing at him when well i think some joke like, they, like is funny but why were they when was that i just thought his character was funny they always go like radio rahim and like they make jokes about radio rahim and i'm like dude there's such a a serious undertone to the idea of that character with how the plot develops at the end right. of the movie. I mean, if it you're making silly to make jokes about that jokes initially before they got to that part i mean they didn't know Oh, they still make like those that. jokes after finishing the movie. Right. Well, very odd. But yeah, I thought it was weird that people were laughing when we were watching Psycho. There's definitely a lot of moments that just plainly just were not funny in the slightest. So it was very odd to see that. And I do want to point out that Anthony Hopkins just gives an incredible performance in this film. Like a performance that's so ahead of the time. Just absolutely phenomenal. Because you're watching this movie and up until this point, you've had a lot of typical 60s performances from a lot of the people mm -hmm. and the one i like to compare him to is the i don't know what his name is but the man who plays the boyfriend and i i know this sam. is hitchcock yeah, yeah I know sam is, but... i know this is hitchcock's intention he had him play the character like you would play any man in the 60s so that you have this straight character who's like the tough the tough character who's the just, man's man yeah yeah the man's man straight laced gonna gonna do the tough guy stuff that's necessary so you can have the subversion with anthony hopkins performance which is just such realism like it's very much intensely like fantastical realism of of actually playing a real person that you might interact with who's a lot weirder he's not like a, a film's interpretation of what a man should be he's just a normal guy who's a little bit of a mama's boy and he's like stuck and he's alone and sad and it's just so incredible the way he performs it's just so ahead of its time you know, as a performance in and of itself and i think it's just absolutely incredible 100 percent. also anthony perkins not Hopkins. Did I say Hopkins? Yeah, twice. God damn it! <laughs> I mean, Hopkins is good, but he wasn't—he wasn't doing this work. I mean, yeah, the Sounds of the Lambs. What are you talking about? I know, but I was saying, like, that was his testament to the freaky character. This was Anthony Perkins. Apparently, Anthony's are really good at playing. <laughs> You're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, final thoughts. 
I just want to bring up two other things. Yes. Maybe three. So the reflections uh, <laughs> is another thing that I noticed on this third viewing. Um, like we see a couple of times when Marion is initially there talking with Norman, she, there's that mirror in that yeah. room, that initial room. And so we see her there and that's reflective of these dual identities. She's not displaying her full self. Like there's something beneath the surface there um, that she's lying about, that she's concealing. So we see that, which is interesting. And then shortly thereafter, when Norman comes back with the the sandwiches in the window, he also has that reflection. So we see there's something bubbling beneath the surface here. Mm. It's not fully on display. Um, so I really like that part. Definitely think that was intentional. I love it when people use mirrors in movies. Right. I just love it's so, so effective. Yeah. So yeah. Such good use. That, again, I think those really were very intentional. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other, this is just a shot that I just think is incredible as well. It's when Arbogast is there looking at the, the book of the people that have signed in and he's trying to play it off. Norman's trying to play it off like, oh yeah, she wasn't here. No one's signed in for the past couple of weeks. Um, but then he's looking at the signature. Arbogast is looking at the signature and it's comparing it to something he has on Marion. And Norman just cranes over to yeah, he like look leans, over. Yeah. He like leans all the way into the book. Yeah. And that <laughs> shot is just so good. Like it's just a weird thing to do, but it's so amazing. Yeah. It's effective in like showing what kind of a person he is. He's just a very odd character. He's very idiosyncratic. Yeah. He's very unique. It's just it's an like, interesting choice. Like strange and ominous as well. Yeah, very. Just that. He's like he's looming over this book. Yeah. He's also taking his time to like very clearly come up with a story. Mm -hmm. So like he's definitely like sitting there and just staring at it and just not even because he knows what's in it and he's not even considering looking at it. He's thinking of a better story to do. And just doing that motion definitely creates a lot of discomfort in any kind of audience that's watching it. Right. So yeah. And then the final thing is just that that last I guess the penultimate scene where it's a psychiatrist explaining things. Mm -hmm. um, and we talk about that sort of a product of the 1960s time. You didn't yeah. need to go into all of that, like explaining for the modern audience. Yeah. Everything yeah. that happened. Everybody um, knows what a split personality is nowadays. Right. So yeah, that feels dated on in retrospect, but it's also, I mean, the speech he gives, like mm -hmm. the way he analyzes it and dissects it is still interesting and compelling to listen to. So that's cool. I also, the way that he does the, uh, not exactly that thing. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. From, <laughs> that's just something that I don't know why, but it's going to stick. That's going to become one of my like sayings or whatever. Uh, not exactly. I think, <laughs> oh, dude, I love in the end when the, at the very end of the explanation, the cop comes in and he's like, he asked for a blanket. Can I bring him one? And the guy says, yeah. And he, he goes in the room with a blanket and he brings it to him. And then the mother's voice says, thank you. Mm -hmm. Dude, I love that. That's nice so touch. creepy. Very nice touch. <laughs> Such yeah. a creepy thing to do. So Rick, out of five fruit seller skellies, skeletons, <laughs> dead I mothers, would, what would you, how would you rate this? <laughs> I would give it a full five. Dude, me too. Yes. Absolutely. A hundred percent. All five stars. It's just through and through an incredible film. Exciting. It's nonstop. It's subversive. It's scary. It just does so many things that a lot of other films from the 60s just do not. Yes. So incredible. It's an absolute trailblazer. This is why Hitchcock was at the top of his game during this time. Yeah. And now for the final film, The Birds in 1963, yeah, birds. which again, I've only seen the one time. I wasn't able mm -hmm. to rewatch it, but you were re able to rewatch it, right? Today? Yeah, I rewatched it today. 
Yeah. Sorry, in Blu-ray, watching a movie Ooh. from the '60s in Blu-ray is a weird experience because I don't do it very often, at least not on the small screen, mm-hmm. and it's just so. It just seems so vivid, and because they have to do so much work covering up like the the film grain and the film noise, like everything appears very much singular, like flat, very flat and very flatly colored. Because they right. have to like go in like a Photoshop type editor and just smooth everything out to get rid of that grain. And it does give like this very odd, very like uber clear kind of definition to these characters, like flawless skin in a lot of these people, <laughs> which is odd to see. But the colors, because everything Technicolor at this time, it just pops so well. And so I love seeing movies from this time period where they have these popping colors, but very dark stories. And The Birds is definitely no exception. Like this Northern California small town that is so full and vibrant. It's like this Bay Harbor town. It's just beautiful. It, it reminds me a lot of Jaws in a way. You know, you have this very brightly colored, very vibrant, very lively small town that is just being devastated by nature, nature fighting back. And in this instance, it's birds, which is <laughs> at, at, at face value, a really dumb idea. Like, think about it. Like, I mean, it's birds. There was a movie that came out in 2007, also starring Rod Taylor. <laughs> And it was called Call. No. And it's about bird attack. It was his last movie he did before Inglorious Bastards, which was his last film. So he made a movie called Call. And it was just about birds attacking people. So, you know, anybody can take this and make it bad. Like, it's a very easy plot to do poorly. Like, it's hard to make this work. And so it is an interesting thing. Because a lot of these films, when you look at the scripts, they're written brilliantly the ideas the stories they're brilliant the birds is not at face value a brilliant idea it is words attacking it is it is the silliest of all possible nature attacks (laughs) in a way i mean you've got jaws which is sharks you've got jurassic park which is dinosaurs and then you have the birds which is birds and he does it in such a strong and, and striking way like he spends a good 40 minutes just setting up all the characters and their relationships to one another, which is the same thing he does in in uh, in Psycho in a way where he's creating an entire plot, an entire story with these characters, and then just turns it into something completely different. And in this one, it's it's birds murdering people. Like it's just the last thing you would expect from a story that is up until this point a love story. Mm-hmm. This is woman chasing down this guy, trying to uh, hit on him trying to draw his interest by pranking him the whole 20 minutes first 20 minutes is her tracking him down to deliver birds as a prank right like it's a prank and i think that's hilarious like ha gotcha i bought you birds (laughs) get fucked (laughs) it's just a prank bro like it's ridiculous but it works because it's so flirtatious in the way that they approach it the way that she sneaks up to the house in the boat and drops the birds off and she watches her leaves they are love birds yes very cute but you parallel that with everything that they're setting up at this point, you know, in the boat, she gets hit by a seagull, uh, a seagull slams into the front door of the school teacher's house and kills itself. Essentially. Um, a lot of the seagulls are going crazy and attacking boats. So you have just a lot of setup and a lot of suspense in the first 40 minutes in the idea that either a, you know exactly what this movie's about, which most people do when they start watching it. And so, you know, it's going to happen at some point. Or B, you have no idea what's happening because maybe someone started putting on the movie and you just hopped in and have no idea what it's about. And so you're getting this idea that something is up with the birds and it's just building that suspense in a way. 
And so it's just incredible what he does. And there's just so many, so many good shots. I did not realize how violent it gets at certain parts. Yeah, for real. Yeah. When Jessica Tandy finds the dead body of the guy who got attacked by seagulls in the night and his eyes are completely gone, chewed out, and his dead body is there. How, like, for 1963, my God, like, Jesus Christ, that is gory. That is full-on gory. Like, I mean, and he, he said he had to do black and white for, for Psycho because he was afraid audiences wouldn't like the gore. <laughs> and here in The Birds, in a full-color film, has a guy's eyes gorged out completely. And not only does it stop on the on the body, it match cuts in closer, then match cuts in closer, then match cuts in closer, until the entire frame is just this man's head with the eyes gone. Very, very scary stuff. And as cheesy as some of the bird footage is, because it does get kind of cheesy at certain points, when you get into the... He does the same thing that he does in Psycho, where you have the, the knife scene in the shower, you have a lot of quick cuts to hide a lot of, I guess, the fact that the knife, then the knife is not actually stabbing her, so you're just doing a lot of quick cuts to hide that. He does a lot of the same stuff in The Birds, where he's showing quick shots of, like, Fake birds attacking people, CGI bird, quote unquote CGI bird. It's just clips of birds flying that they superimpose on top of the film footage. So clips of that happening with clips of puppet birds and their little beaks biting into like fingers and skin and stuff, which is painful. I wish he, I, a little bit of me does wish he included more of that effect. Cause like there's a scene where they're running from the school where it's the kids just running and there's birds and there's a bunch of superimposed birds on top of them. And that doesn't have the full effect to me. But the final sequence where they're stuck in the house and everything is happening on the outside and you can't see anything but the beaks pecking in through the wood and the puppets biting Rod Taylor's hand until it bleeds, that mm-hmm. is more effective to me than the superimposed images of birds flying around. But there's still just a lot of... It's just a, a really good slow burn kind of movie and how it builds up to this completely random cataclysmic event of birds attacking a small town. So... It's the fact that he mir- he marries this idea of a great romantic story with good, well-written, well-rounded characters, good setup of the town and the people who are in the town, and takes the time to build that out, that the rest of the movie, when we're just getting attacked by birds and it's all that, all the work is done in terms of setup, and we can just focus on the birds. And that's fantastic. My favorite part of this whole movie, I will say, is when... Uh, what's her name? T- uh, Tippi Hendren is Melanie Daniels, not Melanie Griffith. You wrote the wrong thing. Yeah, it's Tragic. Melanie Daniels. When Melanie is going to pick up Kathy from the school and she's waiting outside and there's a playground behind her. Oof. And then one crow flies in and then we're fu- we're watching Melanie for a while. And then it cuts back to the playground and two more crows fly in. And we're watching Melanie at a closer angle now for a little while. And they cut back to the playground. Now there's probably 10. And it cuts back to almost a full close-up on uh, Melanie. I think it's like a bus shot, maybe, of her. And she's just getting more and more nervous. And then she follows the eyeline of a crow flying over to the playground. And it pans over. And there's 200 crows <laughs> sitting on this playground just waiting. Dude, that's terrifying. Just to, to have it slowly build up to that and then just escalate so quickly. Just incredibly well done. I love that whole device. hundred percent. My favorite shot, like that is one of them as well. That's incredible. Mine has to be when they do the full on attack on the town mm-hmm. and then 
the car explodes and there's a line yeah. of gasoline fire. Like that's just incredible. But then we see this massive aerial shot of the town. Yeah. And then we it's see a big one, line of fire. Right. And then we see one bird flow into the frame and then it's getting lower and lower down towards the town. And then another bird comes in the frame, another bird. And then it's just the swarm of the birds mm-hmm. blotting out our view of the town now as they're descending upon it. Yeah. Oh, that's also so brilliant. It's incredible. Yeah, it's really cool. I love that whole sequence where they're in the diner for just a good eight minutes just arguing about birds. Me too. That's also and one of my favorites. You've got like six people who are just you're like two or three people who are like, this is stupid. Like, what are you talking about? Birds? What are you, an idiot? This is ridiculous. And they're just having an argument about it for like eight minutes. And then all hell breaks loose very quickly. Like a man gets attacked. They go out to help him. Gas spills. A car explodes. Birds attack everything. They're attacking people. They're knocking them down. They're breaking into windows. They're breaking the windows of the phone booth. Everybody's trapped inside. And then they go back in. And like the old woman who was being like super rude and obnoxious is just cowering in fear at this point and just so shocked and like traumatized from what she's seen. It's incredible. Right. And then the moment where she looks at Melanie and so viciously goes like, this is you. This is your fault. Yeah. They came when she arrived in town. And then Melanie just slaps her. It's so good. It's funny. But now my favorite sequence is of of the birds attacking is probably the final one when they're in the house, just because I love the idea of them pecking into the wood uh, rather than using the superimposed images because they do look a little cheesy. But them pecking into the wood and, and just creating more and more obstacles for Rod Taylor as he's just struggling to keep it all boarded up. And then Melanie going into the room where the birds have broken into and then they just swarm her and attack she just her. Gets- demolished like just so torn terrifying. up just absolutely torn up by birds and it takes them so long to drag her in uh i love the bit where one of the windows comes open and rod taylor is trying to close it and he's trying to reach for the handle and the birds are just pecking at his fingers the entire time his hand just gets more and more bloody and it takes him like a good minute and a half to two minutes to close this window and it's just birds pecking at his hand the whole time it just looks like it hurts so much all of that is set up really, really well. All of it's followed through really well. I just, it does get a little cheesy with the superimposed images. I do like a lot of the dialogue, especially between Rod Taylor and Tippi Hendren. I think they have a good chemistry together. But, but, there is the, the school teacher, the scene where Melanie first meets Mrs. Hayworth, and they're having a discussion. And, of course, the, the thing that we don't know at this point is that uh mrs hayworth had a romantic relationship with rod taylor's character mitch and so that is informing her relationship and her relation to melanie and how she's a little bit like uh like off color to her a little bit rude in a way Mm -hmm. there's one line that is just terrible it's so bad i like balked when i watched (laughs) i went oh there was so the whole time, of course, Melanie is a little bit mysterious. She's asking about the name of Kathy and where they live and everything. And like, just is a complete stranger asking these questions. And so he was talking about how mysterious she is. And then Melanie asks her what Mrs. Hayworth's relationship is to Mitch. And she acts aloof about it. And so Melanie says, like, I guess I'm not the only mysterious one. And then Mrs. Hayworth says, why, on the contrary, I'm an open book. Or rather, a closed one. <laughs> that's a bad line. Yeah, that's not. That's great. just a bad line. <laughs> it's just terrible. It was really upsetting to hear 
because it had been really, really good. It, it just had been such good banter up until that point and such good like, character lines, especially for Tippi Hendren's character. Like it had been very, very good up until this point. And that just took me way out of it. Like I had to stop and write it down on my phone so that we could talk about it in here because it was just that bad. You wanted to call it out. I really did. That's just bad writing. Yeah, it just doesn't. It's it's because the way she says it is it sounds like it's something that would be a good line. But when you actually think about it, it's just really not. It's just bad. But All everything right. else is great. The the action is great. The violence is great. Uh, I just like a lot of it. The ending, however, the ending is also another kind of abrupt one. Kind of it's like true. Uh, I appreciate. I think this one works a bit more though. Like it's kind of a haunting yeah, ending yeah, when yeah. you see that though. All those birds at the house as they're fleeing the town. But. I would agree with you, but there was a special extra on the Blu-ray copy that I have where it showed the script of what the original ending was. And the original ending is they actually drive through the town and it's the whole town is littered with birds just sitting around covering dead bodies, just like just walk like they just drive through the whole town full of birds and dead bodies and stuff. And like it would show the entire destruction of the birds in this entire city. And then there'd be like a brief sequence where the birds try to attack the car and they drive away and escape. And then it's like, as they're driving away, they look back and all the birds are just covering the entire town and all the roads and stuff. And I feel like that would have been more effective and more haunting. It would have punctuated the, the effect that the birds had on this town and the disaster that they struck. Cause we don't see much of it as soon as we don't see any of it. As soon as they get into the house, we only see a brief bit of the destruction they caused to the town. And so to see that follow through would have been, really cool but i think it was probably a budget thing i'd imagine that was what it was yeah um and i still think the same effect is in play when it's yes. the house that they lived yeah. in and that's overrun by the birds so it's I think, still incredible to see that yeah. many birds just in one shot just dominating it and such an it is at this point in the movie a much more haunting presence than it was at any point earlier because we know what they're capable of and there's just so goddamn many of them. There's like three, four, five hundred birds over this entire set just watching. And they don't do anything ultimately, which is great. But they're just there watching and you know they could attack at any moment. Right. Terrifying. All right. What would you give uh, the birds out of five boards? <laughs> I would give it four and a half boards. Four and a half boards? Yeah. I'm going to defer to what I wrote down in my notebook as my rating when I first saw it. Yeah. Just because, again, I haven't rewatched it. I'll give it 3.5 boards. Really? Five. What was yeah. your your drawbacks from it? Just that the character dynamics, I felt, were the weakest in this one compared to all the other ones. Yes, yeah, sir. I wasn't as invested in this like weird dynamic between Lydia and Mitch and her being the possessive mother and then being very cold to Melanie. And how at the end they sort of make up and she like brings Melanie into the fold and mm -hmm. starts treating her motherly. Like, eh, it could sort of work, but I just had far less investment in that compared to yeah. the other stuff. And then, I mean, most of the bird stuff was fine, to be honest, but it does at a certain point get kind of cheesy. cheesy. It does so. get cheesy. That was definitely like for my half point, the cheesiness was a part of it and the some of the lines of dialogue were a part of it. But I think a big part was the fact that once the bird stuff starts happening, a lot of the character development starts to slow down. Right. And it just becomes about the birds attacking and all that setup that is all that great, wonderful setup that is done doesn't have enough follow through for me mm -hmm. as much as like a lot of his other films. Like you have Psycho where 
you do have an abrupt change in the storyline like you do in the birds but the character development continues throughout but with different characters now like it just right. keeps move, progressing forward and the same thing happens in north by northwest and the same thing happens in rear window as the story changes the character developments continue all the way throughout and i feel like in the birds there is a bit of a, a standstill which could be more effective if if they because they really do try like halfways to do some character development i think it would be more effective if it just completely stopped and it was just about the terror of the birds because they do still try to do some halfway stuff between melanie's character and jessica tandy's character the melanie character and lydia brenner the mother they do try to do some stuff with that and i feel like it would have been more effective if once the birds really went all out everything just completely stopped and there was just no more development right like, it was just about survival everything else is secondary to this sudden shift in their daily lives but i'll give it four and a half which is still high i mean no yeah that's a very yeah. solid rating um yeah. and I, I still have a good time watching it and i would recommend it yeah so i mean hitchcock three full five out of fives from both of us uh, from both of us yeah and then the birds still an incredibly solid film that you should go and check out mm -hmm. um i mean yeah hitchcock these four films and then all of his other films as well just an amazing catalog truly you, an amazing catalog would you consider him a, an impactful director on yourself and your visions as a filmmaker based on i mean doing that whole class on him and doing the analysis stuff on him mm -hmm. for sure i would say for mm -hmm. sure like the way again not just in the pure directing sense like you can look at the certain scenes he does the framing composition and psycho for instance to reveal things about character and foreshadow things uh and then in terms of north by northwest that whole crop dust scene like finding a way to very just slowly draw the audience into the sense of anticipation and suspense about what is going to happen mm -hmm. like he eases us into that in a masterful way so there's a lot to learn by studying hitchcock and his directorial style so that i'm definitely going to carry forward i also a lot of his like the things that he's drawn to like the obsessive characters um and ordinary man put into extraordinary circumstances like that makes for a lot of great character stuff as well like in each of these films it's not just an interesting premise and then a lot of great execution on the directing side i mean the stories themselves fundamentally are very very solid the way that he's able to to match that merge that with all the excitement and the suspense that he's able to include that i think mm -hmm. is part of what makes him just absolutely phenomenal yeah he's absolutely incredible would you say he's in your top 10 directors oh for sure oh me too absolutely i just think it's incredible he's so it's not only the fact that he's such a revolutionary filmmaker that has like definitely impacted how i view movies and how i would make movies if i could it's it's also the fact that he has just made such a high volume of films that i hold so dear and so close to myself as things that i cherish and I'm sure if I watch more, more will be added into that list of movies that I love. And the same goes for like Martin Scorsese, who just made so many movies that I love and is such an excellent filmmaker that he's definitely in my top 10. Spike Lee, Bong Joon-ho, like these are the right. elements that make such a, a great director in my eye is not only uh, creating movies that I love, but impacting how I view movies and how I would make movies in my thoughts as i watch movies like that's just such an important part of the process now if you had to take these four movies as a last little thing how would you rank these movies from bottom to top uh, these movies? it's hard isn't it can you put me on the spot 
Uh, you so do you the birds do. last. It would have yeah. to be the birds last. Um, and they're so good. And it's partially, I mean, I've seen Psycho so many times, so I feel like I'm the most well-versed in that one and all yeah. the skill that is on display in that. Um, and I just recently watched North by Northwest. So definitely, I feel like some recency bias is coming in. I want to watch Rear Window again and really give it that second look analysis to see how it holds up. You can um, borrow my copy. Bro, let me do it. Um, so like that would, I feel like that would end up taking the number one spot if I watched it again and was able to internalize all that, mm -hmm. um, all the stuff that goes on in that film. But for now, since I haven't seen it in quite some time, I'll just put it at three. Mm -hmm. Lovingly so. Love your rear window. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, these films are so good. They're, They're so, so amazing. Good. And I mean, distinct and very, distinct. very so unique different rich. films. Um, kind of North by Northwest is such a great time. It really is. It's so adventurous and so fun. And so right. everything's just so unexpected and just well done for a movie from 1959. Just blows my mind. And Psycho is revolutionary and game-changing, and despite the fact that we've seen so much of... Exciting, nonstop excitement. What he innovated in this film has percolated throughout the industry at this point, but it's still, yeah. in its origin, still so effective. Um, oh, I don't know. It's like choosing between your favorite children. How could you do it? I mean, if I had a gun to one of your children's... <laughs> Jesus. Um, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, for right now, I'm going to put it at Psycho North by Northwest. North by Northwest is one? Yes. Wow. Right now. I mean, Rear Window. With an asterisk, asterisk next to Rear Window, um, that it most likely will end up taking the top spot. But I mean, again, for the North by Northwest thing, it is such a thrilling ride. I feel like any like if you put that on, there's just going to be enjoyment the whole way through. It's, you can do it no I'm matter saying. how many times you see it. So Now picture me having seen it for the first time next to you and then you having an opinion that was like it's good like i was <laughs> like i was really blown away after i watched it and you were just like yeah i had a good time i was, I was like, like it was solid but i didn't on. at that point i was not fully converted to i was so shocked North by your by your opinion but i was like this is so good how could you not be just over the moon in love with this for me recency also does play a big factor into this and i watched the birds and rear window over the past weekend and i watched psycho a couple weeks ago and i haven't seen north by northwest in months so that'll definitely impact my list but it's definitely birds at the bottom uh north by northwest then psycho then rear window rear window is just brilliant through and through like just perfect that's what mastery. i'm saying it's just like it's like if if anyone could come close to making a perfect film rear window would be as like one of the films that could get closest to perfect that's what i'm it's saying. up there it's like that and parasite are just so close to her the one drawback in the rear window thing is the climax to it when he's in the in the apartment the killer comes in the apartment mm -hmm. and he's to fend him off lb is taking the photos like that was very dated the way they came across dude i love that i love no, that no, sequence. No, no. no dude i that really like it so it's... flat it's so it's very simple, but I do really like it. It happened like three times. There was no music, and it was just him like taking a couple steps forward, waddling forward, then getting flashed, stopping, 
I don't know if he was replaying the same shots as well. When I you're, would, it's not the same shots. But when you're, when you're watching it, it does feel a little dated at the moment. But then it just escalates so quickly when he grabs him and starts to throw him. That out the part window, I like. And everyone but I'm saying screaming before that, and the whole just... neighborhood wakes up. Like it's the build up to me. Like it's a mm. very slow. Like you're like, oh, this is kind of silly, and then it escalates so quickly. It's like the the juxtaposition of those two moments of like this slow build up to him creeping forward as this ominous giant figure who's just being illuminated and it's like he's taking these pictures and it's like he's illuminating he's finally showing the world who he truly is and blinding him by that truth and he's like approaching him and then just rejects this truth and just grabs him and tries to throw him out the window in a last resort to cover his tracks because he's just at with his wits end at this point i agree with all that but if it just happened once the one shot he gets blinded then he starts going out again gets blinded the second time but still keeps rushing through to grab him it could have been, it would have been I will great. I would have liked I that. will I will admit to it could have been paced better. Yes. But I like the idea behind it certainly. And I, I feel well, like I like the idea. Again, that just it was the it was a very strange execution of it that really slowed down the pacing there. But then again it, it yeah. picked up afterwards. But again, so rear window has the asterisk next to it because I wanna say it's severe, but I can't do can't mm-hmm. fully say that in a justified way if I haven't given it a second viewing. So Yeah. Upon second viewing, whenever that happens, I will update yeah. you all on the Hitchcock list. Yeah. I think I have, I'm going to have to go back to my list of favorite movies and add Psycho and Rear Window to them. Because rewatching them and talking about them in depth has just made me re-fall in love with them. And I feel like I would do the same thing if I watched North by Northwest recently. Ooh, like, sure. I'm going to have to go in and add those two to the list, definitely. The Birds is probably like top 250. Like I, <laughs> I can't, I can for certain. Say. That's what, what I'm saying. What would you? So are you saying your top? When you say your top, what do you mean? Your top twenty five that you have, or your top? So what I, mean, I do is, is when I see a movie that I know is definitely like one of my favorites, I will go, I will start at the bottom of the list and say, is it better than this movie? If it is, I move forward until I find the movie that I don't think I like more than it, and then that's where it goes in the list. Wait, how many films are on that list? Twenty two so far. Oh, okay. What? So it, that's it, fewer than what you have on your little poster back there, right? Did you have the twenty-five? No, that's, that's how many it is. It's like twenty-two. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I have, I have the rolling count of the IMDb, two fifty, which is unpopulated, right now, because yeah. I have the like general list of the ten, and then the ones I'm like, I just throw up. I'm like, yo, this is a good movie. Haven't yeah. sorted them yet, but these are definitely top fifty for sure. The three full fives yeah. that we gave. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know where North by Northwest would go, but I could see Rear Window and Psycho both cracking top 20 for me. Top 15, Ooh, maybe. Incredible. I need to go through and, and, and put it in. I'm going to do it right after we finish recording. I'm going to add them in, and then I'm going to go to what is the, the free photos. The thing where you get free photos, I'm going to order the photos so I can add it to my wall. Nice. All right, that is all the time we have. Uh, our movie of the week is every Hitchcock movie ever made, so <laughs> go watch some of those, you know. Uh, if you'd like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the actual movie of the week, you can email us at theboxoffishow at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. Be sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening.